0: Hello, my name is James Marsh. I'm Managing Director of Andromeda Metals. Uh, we are a South Australian-based mining company. We are a near-term producer. Uh, our vision is to become a world leader in the production and supply of high-quality premium industrial minerals uh, and their use in downstream nanotechnologies, which will improve the environment and improve the life for everybody around. James, thank you very much for the introduction.
1: Uh, nice to meet you. You, sp- you spent the last three years in in australia but you're i believe you're in a hotel room in london now you're, you're you you've you got out
0: correct yes well i've uh, been unable to travel here for three years um but now i'm out on the loose and uh getting the word the word out the the good news out about andromeda to europe and uh, i'll be spending the next three weeks traveling around europe speaking to a lot of hopefully interested and, and influential people
1: uh, well good well good to have you on uh, uh, on on crux and uh you know, looking through your presentation, looking through your company, I, I see that there are uh, three kind of key branches to this, or to, to kind of three component branches uh, of Andromeda. You've got the the industrial mineral side of the business. With you've just put out a feasibility study on Great White, the Carolyn project. There, um, you've got a metals division, and you've got the nanotechnology. Um, now, uh, I kind of understand a bit more about the the, the metal side of the business. Um, but from what I can see, the kind of the two key drivers for you in the kind of the in the near and medium term and long term are the the, the kaolin business, the Great White Project, and the nanotechnologies. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to cover uh, those today.
0: That's correct. Yeah. So the, the industrial minerals business, which is as quite you quite rightly said, we've just released our definitive feasibility study on the Great White kaolin project that's our that's the key to our industrial minerals business and the start of it that is the base case start of the business that's intimately related to the nanotechnology uh, side of our business as well so those two are very interrelated they're dependent on each other Um, the plan is to use cash flow from the great white project to commercialize a number of nanotechnologies which are very exciting new technologies which we'll talk about Uh, and we also have in the middle, we have our metals section, which we call our harvest section. We've got a copper project there, two gold projects, and one of those is now a rare earth elements project as well. So those are represent uh, potentially some, some very high value for us, um, but we're going to harvest those and use them any um, capital from that to assist the other sides of our business.
1: When you say harvest, do you mean that you're looking for farm out partners and um, you're looking to sell the projects or... Are you looking to develop them as yourselves and kind of take them up the capital curve? Or is, is it a capital um, cash out business now or a capital in, You know, what, what's your plan for those projects?
0: Yes, definitely no capital in for those. Um, we are using those uh, for capital out, if anything. So we have at the moment the copper project um, and the gold stroke rare earth project. We ha- already have partners there, joint venture partners who are running those, managing those and funding those on a farm in basis. Uh, and then we have a gold project, North Queensland, that we're talking to two or three interested parties at the moment uh, to see if how they want to get involved with that gold project. So, yeah, certainly from our side, there's no nothing coming in from our side apart from um, communications. Good,
1: good, good. Now,
0: the, the, the feasibility
1: study that you, you just put out uh, a month ago, more or less, early April, uh, it, it, it gave a, we're going to speak in Aussie, Aussie dollars um, throughout this, just for simplicity. So it gave a value of $613 million um, NPV, um, 36% IRR. It's obviously a really tricky time to publish any feasibility study because kind of cost inputs are all over the show, you know, kind of energy prices, concrete prices, steel prices. It's a it, it, it's a tricky time. Can you explain uh, how did he manage that process? And, and obviously you've got that... Um, There are two variables here. One is the kind of the revenues you're going to get from your products, which are bouncing around a bit, and the other is your cost inputs. And so that those are good. Those two kind of key factors are going to affect your margins. Can you just kind of explain a little bit how you handled that in the feasibility process?
0: Yeah, well, you're quite right. It's a a tricky time to do this uh, sort of uh, study right now. Uh, The world, um, as we know it, is not the same as it was when we first started this, and when we put our pre-feasibility out a couple of years ago, the world was a very different place. Um, So it meant that we had to put a tremendous amount of work into the DFS to try and get the uh, the structure, the size, um, and all of the issues around that at just the right level to make this something that we were very confident in being able to achieve, uh, but also uh, at the right size to make it very interesting and give us some significant cash flow for the business. So, that caused a bit of a problem because the PFS was so different. The DFS was really starting from scratch again. Um, and there was a, seemed to be a lot of market uh, misunderstanding of what we're trying to do there. And also the numbers we put out, because we were we were comfortable those numbers were good numbers. And as a DFS, um, a standalone DFS, as a, for an Australian mining project, uh, it looked very strong and very robust. Uh, and the messaging around it was, "Yep, yeah, this is a base case as well. It's not, this is not the best, um, possible study we could put out we've kept this at a very conservative level um, uh, for the reason we wanted to have something that we were we were confident in being able to deliver uh, and there were some some uh i suppose issues around things like the npv the npv was 613 australian dollars which is million dollars which is uh you know that's a impressive number and we were comfortable with that number um but it was less than our pfs um but you know a major factor in that was uh, the exchange rate, S- simple as that. The exchange rate changed, and in fact, since we released the DFS between uh, then and now, um, we've actually added potentially another sixty million dollars to our NPV. <laughs> so that's how much the market's changing around at the moment.
1: So, so you talked about kind of um, the, the the care that you've gone into sizing it. You've got um, look, you've got in the in the DFS, you've got fifteen million tons of reserves. Uh, proven and probable you have know, got a um 15 million tons which are going to get mined um and it's over 28 years my simple math is it's just it's around half a million tons per annum and yet the um the, the you the, the the feasibility shows that it's in four stages and the the first stage it's got a capex of what is it 90 uh 94 94 million 93 94 million dollars to start. You know how, can you just ex- for my benefit kind of explain how it goes from in four stages and why did you choose half million tons a year as a, as a throughput rate?
0: Yep so we the, the idea was to use this DFS um, to release uh, study as a staged process uh, and we want to stage it uh, because uh, the world's an uncertain place right now, we wanted to de-risk it as much as possible. So we used a four-stage approach, um, what we call in the uh, the crawl, walk, run approach, whereas we want to start at crawling and we want to make sure that uh, when we get things like we get the top off the ground, we know exactly what's in there. We get the channels to market set up. We get the relationships with customers set up. We get the branding out there in the market and recognition. Um, but we want to do that without going too big too soon. Um, so um, we we are staged it um, appropriately, um, and also to reduce the capex. So the capital mind up the front, we wanted to minimize that. We didn't want to um, have to go back, tap the market again for large amounts of money. Um, no, because shareholders are very sensitive to any dilution. So we really tried to structure this to uh, keep our shareholders uh, happy on side uh, and make them understand we were trying to look after them, but also trying to get this business going as quickly and, uh, and as efficiently as possible. So the first stage, we actually start about 300,000 tonnes a year of mining. So it's below that half a million you mentioned. So 300,000 tonnes of feed, which gives us approximately 150,000 tonnes of product. Uh, And the first stage uh, will be two products, which is important to mention, because the main product is what we're calling our KCM90, which is a semi-refined, or some people would treat it as a fully refined product. Uh, And this is something that we wanted to get in the market quickly, we saw a a gap in the market uh, for a very high-quality premium Holocyte cutting, which is what we have, um, and a big demand for that. And we've we've realised that if we produced a uh, material that was refined to this level, uh, it's much easier to make. It's got a high recovery, it's got a higher throughput, um, and it's got lower specifications on the end product. And yet, Um, When it goes to market, there's a far broader market for this material because customers out there, there's three types of customers out there who want it right now. There's customers out there with uh, processing plants themselves. So they've got calium processing plants, but they've got no premium grade material to process. So they want to buy it from us um, to process themselves, to upgrade it to a a truly premium grade for a highest value. Um, They also, a second customer, they have got calium plants or processing plants and they've got a few material Poor quality uh, and you want to add our material into it. So it upgrades the whole of their resource. Um, and then they will process that and be able to make a much higher grade, higher value material. And then the third type of customer we've got are people who decided they can use it directly as is. So it's this material is um, can be used primarily in ceramics, so very high quality ceramics. Uh, and it's now been approved for use directly in things like uh, glaze, and very high quality tiles which are very big markets around the world and growing rapidly as well so um so that means we have a product we're producing a rate of about um, somewhere around about 130 tons a year of that particular grade okay. that allows us to get into those markets um get those relationships established get the product out there and once people realize how good it is how consistent it is um then the demand will increase and also that put pressure on the market which allow us to even get even better prices than we've got. Uh, in the DFS, we used the lowest price in the market we found in our DFS, again, being very conservative. So we've started at the base case, lowest price, um, a lower amount of output. Um, but then that's the first stage. Uh, and the second product we have during that first stage is what we're calling our Great White HRM, which is our concrete additive material. Now this material is interesting because it's, uh, we've got a patent application in for this. It's been certified for use in concrete. It gives uh, a very interesting combination of performance improvements, handling improvements, cost savings, and carbon footprint reductions. So all the things that people in the concrete construction industry want right now. Um, and once, since we got the DFS out, we've been working with commercial uh, partners for to get some off takes for that material, uh, and I can tell you that uh, hot off the press, we've just signed an LOI with the world's biggest supplier of mineral additives and chemical additives. Um, this is a truly global customer, uh, a company that supplies the whole world, um, multi billion dollar turnover. They've just signed an LOI with us for exclusivity to distribute this product around. Uh, initially around asia pacific but that could well spread so that's exciting development and that material looks like it's going to be a, you know, a very interesting one for us because no one else has got that no one and else that's has got that. and
1: that's kind of 10 to 20,000 tonnes per and that's the balance which
0: isn't the kcm90 correct the so balance we've uh, we're going to ramp that up it's a new new product going to the market so it needs a sort of steady ramp up uh, but it's it is high margin it's high margin. the secret to that one is getting the right fee material and this is a very specific area within our 15 million ton reserve. We have a specific area of the heloocyte kelion uh, and the heloocyte component is very important in that, um, that gives us the reactivity in concrete. We've also found though that since we re- released the DFS, we found that that product works in a, a whole range of other applications. So we're now looking at using it as, a, as an additive for chemicals and even an additive for drilling fluids where it seems to be working very well. So that one we're confident that will grow. Um, but we've kept that low in the DFS, and we will expand that, um, ideally expand that faster than is indicated in that ramp up. Okay, so, so I've
1: got I've got two two kind of um, questions, uh, almost geological questions. Um, the first one is you talk about your the Great White Project having uh, halloysite and this this um, the ability to produce a high grade kaolin that other plants can't. Is that is there some geological feature about the granite on which the kaolin has formed, which is not present in other granites? And so that's the first question. And I'll let you answer that before I ask the second question.
0: Yeah, so halloysite is a it's quite an unusual form of, of kaolinite. Uh, it's not unusual in its occurrence. You can find particles in most kaolin um, deposits and resources around the world. But what you don't find is any significant amounts of halloysite, Because what they are, they're rolled up tubes of the kaolin plates. So they roll up into natural nanotubes. Um, and to get a large concentration of those in a high purity deposit is very rare in the world. In fact, there's no one in the world now who's commercially producing large amounts of this material uh, in the form that's required for nanotechnology um, development. So uh, we are quite unique in what we have. And geologically, you need the in first, that gives you the basis. But then what you normally need is very acidic water, um, that's actually in paleo channels around that resource, that very acidic water has to sit around for a very long time when we could be talking millions of years in that curling deposit. uh, And that will cause the haloocyte to form uh, and its natural nanotubes to form. And that's what makes a difference. In our great white uh, resource and our reserve, we have a very high concentration of high purity haloocyte. We have areas Uh, Large areas where it goes up to about 60% halosite in the minus 45 micron fraction. Um, But across the whole resource, it's generally about 20%. But what we also have in the uh, the great white resource is an area with zero halosite, which is interesting, which shows you the complexity of the halosite story. Uh, And that's got zero halosite, but it's super high purity, uh, incredibly high purity. The highest I've seen in 34 years in the business and that's what we were going to use. That's what we use in our stage four um, of the ramp-up, which is our paint-grade material, uh, our great white PRM. Okay, so
1: just a couple of questions. One is that if you've had these acidic waters for a long period of time, you, there must be some kind of recharge of some acid generation for that long period of time, because otherwise they would just neutralise over time, I should imagine. But So presumably that you, your geologists have kind of, come up with the various theories for why, how the Haliosite is um, so prevalent in this, in this instance.
0: Yeah, so we found when we first started work on this, uh, on, on the Great White and surrounding area, um, it was a big learning process for our geologists. Now, I've been um, involved in Kirlian for over 30 years, um, but not much in Haliosite. I, I knew about it, uh, been involved with it on and off, but only because it's so rare, not to any great extent, and it's still much, very much of an unknown science about the site. Um, but we've learned a great deal and our geologists now are, are very experienced in, in the formation the exploration the analysis um, of site. we've developed our own technique for analyzing it that is far more accurate than previous techniques uh, because it's a very difficult thing to do uh, and we've also learned to identify where we might be able to find uh, large resources of site in the future and and on that basis, we are out now drilling as we speak. We're drilling now, and we've got exploration targets now of about 700 million tons. So huge targets that we're aiming at, and we're—I um, suppose—we're optimistic. Uh, we're not saying too much that we have identified areas where we believe we will find very large amounts of certainly very high-purity kaolin and possibly very high-purity haloicide as well. Excellent, thank you, because I, the, 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 the kind of, I, was,
1: I was leading on to those two questions. <clears throat> um, the one is kind of metallurgical mapping and zonation, and it's not enough, uh, and, and how do you do it? Because you're dealing with these kind of ultra-fine clays, um, presumably there's nothing visual that you can that geologists in the field can use is it all done at a microscopic level how do you do your your mineral mapping over the resource is, is, is that fiendishly complex or have you got some have you have you cracked the code that, that can be yeah. done at a project scale
0: yeah so it's uh, it it has been as so call called fiendishly difficult for a while because uh, the only way to do it historically is to use x-ray diffraction techniques uh, and it's a very special one just for olivine because kyanite holosite they're identical in terms of chemistry and mineral energy. Uh, it's just uh, the shape, it's just a polymorph. So to analyze that and quantify it is extremely difficult. Now you can see it under a scanning electron microscope, but there's no where you can get a resource worked out on that. Uh, no. So the what we found was that the the conventional technique that's been used for 30 years, probably, to using X-ray diffraction didn't actually work very well. And there were some, some complicating factors in there that it, it worked on some alloy site, uh, and other hollow sites, you gave completely wrong results. So we worked very hard on developing a new technique. Uh, I don't want to say too much because uh, we've developed it in-house and it works beautifully. And uh, it's, um, it's cut the turnaround time for a set of samples to be analyzed previously it was about three months for a set of drill samples, very long time. We've cut that down to about three days. Um, and and- you,
1: you can do that at the site. So you can, can, can you create a map? Can you create sections and geological maps of where the site is and where the kaolin is? And can you contour things so that you can do a kind of a, a mineralogical map of the kaolin?
0: We have, so we've got a block model now and our, our chief geologist very, is very good on modeling. So he has got a, a block model of the whole resource uh, and it's modeled on a number of different uh, factors. One is heliocyte concentration. So it's a, no, it's a heat map with the different colors across the whole resource uh, and also down in 3D. So. We've got that done now and we, we've we got a technique where we've got a handheld piece of equipment that we can measure the holosite content um, in the field now. And this is quite new. We're just using it at the moment. Uh, and this is something that we're going to use once we start operations, which is not too far away now, because to do Q, QA, QC based on holosite content uh, would be impossible without a very rapid, easy technique to use. And up till now, that's been impossible. And in fact, no one in the world has done it, as far as we know, until now. So we've got this new technique. It's going to help us tremendously, um, and also as we're going out drilling these new resources, um, you know, we can get some some really uh, reliable numbers right away as soon as we drill holes and pull the material out. Um, and the other the other very complicated factor is that for for the uh, halloysite cation that goes into concrete and there's other new applications, it's not it's also an additional test to be to it has to be applied there because it's not just the halloysite and the cation it's also the surface chemistry. So we've had to develop another test, um, first of all, to find the halocyte chelion, and secondly, to find the right surface chemistry. Right, um,
1: right. By surface
0: chemistry, what do you refer to? What do you mean? So The, the reactivity, so there's a certain reactivity um, that combined with the halocyte content gives you um, this amazing performance when you put it into uh, high solid slurries. And the surface chemistry test, and again, I don't want to give too much away because this is something that, that um, we've developed in-house, uh, and it's certainly something very exciting because uh, anyone involved in the horse like and the Kelly industry would be very keen to find out what's going on here because it's such a strong effect, uh, and potentially so valuable in a whole lot of applications that, um, that you know we want to protect that value. Um, we're pretty confident that there's no one else that we know of in the world that's got the sort of resource we have, uh, but it's certainly something we want to um, now keep our hands on and expand that because that's a very, very interesting domestic market there, a very high value market domestically. Um, But if it works in Australia, it'll work anywhere in the world. And um, we're confident that this company we just signed up with as as a with an LOI as a distributor. They want to distribute it through the whole of Asia Pacific. They can see the opportunities here. Um, So that's something that's very exciting.
1: Help me out here. I'm just I'm I'm getting my head around this. So kaolin is a clay that forms from the weathering of a feldspar and when you've got a granite that weathers down, you, the quartz grains are resistant and they stay there. And the, the feldspars, all the biotite and all the other stuff gets kind of washed away. And there might be a bit of tourmaline, a bit of boron in there, but, which may change the, the mix a bit. But essentially, the the, the feldspar turns into a white clay, which is a kaolin. It, then some of it gets rolled up into little nanotubes, which is the halloysite, and then there's another overlay which is the 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 surface chemistry which I haven't got my head around yet but um when you process it you mine half a million tons 300,000 tons to start off with and you effectively what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the quartz washed out to one side and the and the the clays come to the other side how do you then how do you separate the haliosite from the, the 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 kaolin platelets and how yeah. do you, how do you, how do you separate that into those into products? And what's the relationship between the active surface chemistry with the different minerals? Is it was it a subset of the of the halloysite, or is it some of that is in sitting in the kaolin and some of it sitting in the halloysite?
0: Yeah, so a lot, uh, quite a bit to unpack there in that, in that question. Those questions, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've uh, you've struck on a very important uh, factor a feature of this whole business that um, purification of the halloysite is. Uh, something that's very interesting because halosite as a pure mineral uh, will sell for $5,000 a tonne. Very, very high value. That's about 10, 20 times what you get for a, uh, an average grade Kalein. So if, if we can get a, a pure site, then that's worth an absolute fortune. And so we are looking at purifying it, um, but there's two, there's two ways to approach that. You either find a resource of high purity and then just remove the sand because the sand's about 50% which is the uncalinized part of the the granite, Um, or you find a way to purify it. Uh, And the only way that you you can potentially purify it is to use gravity, so gravity separation techniques. Uh, And we have, at the moment, we have a a $1 million pilot plant that uh, our team are working very hard on purifying, uh, techniques to purify halosite at the moment. Um, we are, we've we got a, a very large centrifuge there, which is industrial calian centrifuge that we source from the um, UK. And we've got hydrocyclones from Germany uh, and we are set up very well there to be able to purify it. The moment we are working on, on the purification because we don't just want the ability to sell the site for $5,000 a ton, but we also want uh, that for our nanotechnologies. The higher purity that we have uh, of the site, then that means the the better our nanotechnologies will work. So that's something we're working very hard. Um, but having said that, we know we know that there's areas in our uh, resources at the moment that are very high halosite anyway. Uh, and the drilling that we're doing at the moment, I, I mentioned that we're targeting about 700 million tons uh, of exploration of halosite and halosite kelion. Well, one of the areas we're targeting is our resource uh, called Bronzuela, which we previously found 90% purity halosite there and so we're going back there to, to see if we can find any more of that. Uh, and it's a very interesting fact that the all alloicyte doesn't behave the same way when you try and purify. So some types of alloicyte, because it varies in the, sh- the dimensions, the, sh- the length of the tubes, the diameter of the tubes, the surface chemistry, it doesn't behave the same way when you try and purify. So some will purify very well and some won't purify at all. Now, you can use exactly the same technique and you'll get zero response in some cases, but with another type of fluorocyte from a different area, you get a very strong response. So this is some stuff we've worked through for the last three years. Uh, it makes it interesting, uh, yeah. but also more challenging. My
1: goodness. And this is all um, ultra-fine. It's all sub minus 45 microns. I mean, this is all very, very fine. And and, and therefore, the, 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 the gravity response must be slow. I mean, the, the, these, these ultra-fines respond very, very... Um,
0: Slow, they're, they're slow to respond in a in a fluid. That's right. So the um the the, the, the two micron particles are presumably of what the side are. So it's very, it's even much finer than the forty five microns. We're talking about two micron particles here generally. Uh, and you're right, it, it's gravitationally it responds very slowly. So that's why we have to use um, centrifuge and hydrocyclones. So centrifuge, um, the one we have spins at uh, four thousand times a minute. So very high uh, gravitational forces are being used there. And what you can do is by using those forces, you can engineer the particle size distribution. So you can cut the particle size distribution at certain points, for example, plus 10 microns uh, or, or minus 2 microns or minus 1 micron even. And then what you do is you find the right fraction of that distribution that that, that, that houses the site. and then you can take that out uh, and then dewater water it, and you have your high purity site. So we. Got, we're actually working through an exercise right now where we, we're producing a tonne of very high purity halosite for our carbon capture plant that um, we've just constructed and built and it's on its way. It should be arriving next week from India. Uh, and this carbon capture plant needs a tonne of, of very high purity halosite uh, and we're well on, on the way to finishing production of that. And so this is uh, another exciting development that uh, I said it's worth $5,000 a tonne uh, as a uh, pure mineral but it can be upgraded uh, and the ultimate upgrade is to something that it would be used in uh, things like uh, air purification in submarines and spacecraft um, where we, there's materials there being used right now that sell for $3 million a ton. Uh, and our material is about five times better than that based on our testing to date. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a very interesting opportunity here to upgrade to the carbon capture section of the business. Uh, and also, we think that we're going to contribute, have the ability to contribute to decarbonisation of the world greatly by this technology. Goodness, there's so many things going on.
1: Um, they, 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 how does the pilot plant fit in relative to the development schedule of the, the kind of the general Great White project?
0: So the pilot plant at the moment is at Streaky Bay, which is near the, uh, the site, mine site, the future mine site. What we plan to do though, we plan to upgrade that pilot plant. So at the moment uh, it's capable of producing uh, hundreds of kilos or maybe even ton, a ton amount of material. So we're gonna upgrade that as part of our um, next stage uh, as the move, in, in the move to operational start. So we want that pilot plant to be able to produce tens of tons, hundreds of tons, or even maybe a couple of thousands of tons of material. Uh, and it's, it's gonna be fairly easy to do. Yes, we know exactly what we need. Um, we just got to size the equipment. That will give us the opportunity to produce large amounts of pure alloysite and also large amounts of the concrete additive and uh, variants of that additive that can go into other applications. That'll give us the chance to get container loads out or truck loads out to customers uh, and get the the market established. Because we we have people ready to pay money right now for those products. They've tested them, they've approved them uh, and they want supply. So this is a way of getting the material out there, start that supply. And then by the time the big plant uh, gets into operation, then it should be a very smooth transition because they're already used to using the materials and you know it's just a, a upscaling up the amount of use of those materials. And um, one of the questions I wanted to ask earlier was about the, the ability
1: for you to continue to supply their high-quality uh, additive material. But I think you've answered that with the metallurgical mapping and the exploration that you're looking to do, and particularly around bronze whaler. And within that 700 million ton target, you've... Presumably, got enough line of sight to be able to say we we can supply you now and for the next few years. And there's every chance that we can continue to supply that in the future.
0: That's correct. So the uh, the, the concrete additive material, which is the special one, then at the moment we have about six hundred thousand tons of that material, so we've got we've got a lot to give us going for a few years there, um, based on our uh, forecast ramp up. But we are now doing using our this new equipment, our new techniques to expand that. Within Great White, so we're confident we've got a lot more within Great White itself. But we also um, believe that we're going to find this material in probably much larger amounts in these other target areas, uh, because we know the geology, uh, the water, uh, and all the geological conditions there are just right for producing not just the, not just the concrete additive material, but also High purity site.
1: We'll get onto the nanotechnologies, but before we do that, can you can you just um, tell me about what the plan is in terms of financing, construction, permitting? You know, the route to uh, Great White Big Stage One timelines and and um, milestones, please.
0: Yeah, so planning wise, we got our mining lease uh, granted uh, at the end of last year, so um, that was a, a major milestone for us. Now that that is. The government south australian government saying it yeah, these minerals uh should be extracted we've got a commercial economic resource there that so needs to be um removed for the uh you know, for the state approves that so that was the end of last december now that means that we just have now to finish the environmental sign off which is well underway now yeah it's in south australia it's called the pepper which is the environmental sign off of the mine and this is just writing a plan a mining plan to meet the conditions they've given us Uh, and the conditions they gave us were far less onerous than we expected so this should be just a formality um, to get that done now things were slowed down a bit by COVID um, mainly on the government side that now they had other priorities a lot of issues in running uh, and dealing with managing mine site um, issues around South Australia so we lost a bit of time on that um, but we should be having our should go in uh, in June and that's then the government then has to approve that. It can take a couple of months to do that. It can take a bit longer. So, um, so we say some point, second half this year, we will have the environmental sign-off. So once that's achieved, uh, that means that um, we have the go-ahead. And so that should all be done by second half this year. And then you're into financing. And then we have to decide, yep. So we, we use this base case uh, for the DFS. We are working on a few opportunities um, in the background now because we... Once the DFS was released, we had a number of parties that were keen to look at working with us, uh, and these are people who are in the se- right sector, the same sector, so we have opportunities there to possibly uh, team up with someone else, um, and we also now have the ability to really uh, focus in on those costs for the DFS. i yeah, say so it was conservative. We put in very high numbers there. We used uh, a WA company uh, to price it up for us, so... What we can be assured of is that's a worst-case scenario, um, and we're confident that we can you know, we can optimize that probably quite significantly over the next few weeks and months. So we're looking at um, moving towards ordering long lead items fairly soon uh, because that's the next thing that's on the critical path for the project uh, schedule. You now, the world of uh, logistics and, and uh, supply has changed as well over the last few months. Yeah. and uh, yeah. Not easy to get. So, so we've identified what the key... Um, items that we need are, uh, and we're gonna order those first. And that's, uh, we're now going through the final uh, stages of what we know what we want to order, but we want to work out how soon we need it so it doesn't affect our timelines at all. So that's in progress at the moment as well. Uh, and in, in our last capital raise, we identified uh, the amount of money we use, we're we gonna to use to, to order those long lead items. Um, so that's all moving ahead. And we're now just trying to work out um, where we want to get to in the time required to make the, the, final, the final financial investment decision. Um, but it looks like at the moment, uh, we're in a very strong position to move that forward quickly. Uh, and certainly part of my next, next few, uh, next three weeks, whilst I'm here in Europe, I'm talking to some very interesting people uh, who can see the benefits of getting involved with a, a company like Andromeda that um, has got a, a, a very de-risked project now um we've got a material we've got a mineral that is growing in demand and reducing in supply around the world um and we've had this huge potential upside so i think there's a lot of interest there that i'll be talking to people and um we'll see what happens over the next few weeks or months but um certainly some very interesting times ahead there um yeah absolutely so potentially fid uh... Possibly even this year, but
1: more likely first half of next year.
0: I think no. I think we're talking about this year. No, we we don't want to. We want to be producing next year. Now, if if all goes to plan, we'll be actually operating and supplying customers next year. Um, so the build the build time once we order components, we're talking about three months to six months okay. to, to build and co- build and commission. Uh, it's not complicated technology. It's um it's conventional technology. It's been around for decades. Um, there are some optimizations now and some you know, some. Some upgraded bits of the gear, but it's nothing new. Nothing. It's not rocket science at all. So, um,
1: it's a it's a sophisticated wash plant.
0: Yeah, it's a sand removal plant. That's right. And uh, yeah, you now it's uh, historically people would would, would uh, take the sand and sell that as a product, and throw the uh, the kelly away. Uh, we're we're the opposite. Our sand isn't isn't really particularly valuable. It's a good construction grade sand, but um, not worth much in the market at the moment. So, that goes back in the hole. Uh, we use progressive rehabilitation as we move forward, and then we just um, uh, dry, uh, refine and dewater the keratin, and sell that. And uh, we don't have any nasty chemicals without any tailings dams, so it's very low impact. Um, so it's very um, uh, it's socially acceptable mine, form of mining. I like to think that all mining these days is getting to be
1: more socially acceptable, but perhaps there are some categories which are still out there. Um, but thank you, that's really useful. Can we talk about the nanotechnologies side of the business, please?
0: Yeah, certainly. So this is a this is a very exciting area of our business. Now the, the Great White uh, project itself you now is that's going to be our foundation of, of the natural of the nanotechnologies. So that's going to give us what we need to commercialize the nanotechnologies and also it'll feed the HelloSight into the te- into technologies. So we've got a whole range of nanotechnologies technologies we're working on. Uh, we're working very closely with uh University of Newcastle that has a, a global innovation center for nanotechnology um we're funding at the moment, um over a million dollars a year of research uh, and that's been going on for many years now and we've uh, in the we've uk co- new- newcastle in the uk no sorry i said newcastle new south wales so ah okay this is the other other side of the world um yeah much more convenient for us yeah and uh there's <laughs> as a as a, as a world leading team there of people working now nanote- nanotechnologies and we've got 12 different opportunities they were working on. Um, But we've got six core opportunities that we really focused on at this point in time. And these technologies are ones that we feel the world needs right now and the world's looking for right now and solutions to some real global issues. Uh, And first off, there is first of those is decarbonization. Now, I think everybody in the the world now is aware how important it is to decarbonize. Uh, And we've been developing over the last probably three years this. Uh, process to use the site. so we can activate the site with a special activation system, produce a, a polymeric matrix that can be used to filter out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere um, or probably more likely to filter it out from industrial processes, so from waste gases and flue gases. So we've got a system uh, that can, can extract the, the carbon dioxide. It can extract very large amounts. We're looking at getting towards two tons of carbon dioxide for one ton of the halocyte matrix material. Uh, and this is a cyclic uh, process. So it's, it's a, a plant that we've designed or the university's designed with us. That's got two chambers. One chamber will absorb the CO2 and one will discharge it. So it will can operate continuously. Um, and it will operate for over long periods using the same material. Um, so it doesn't get consumed, we can keep using it. Uh, and the very important feature for us and our unique point here that we have is that we can convert that fuel uh, so we can give up that carbon dioxide to a fuel. So as far as we know, no one else in the world has this ability, we can convert the CO2 that we capture using another nanotechnology um, that's been developed to a methane. So that will completely close the carbon loop. So someone could attach this uh, plant to their flue gas. That's emitting lots of carbon dioxide. We can capture all that carbon dioxide and convert that to a fuel, methane, which can then go back and be used in the same process as a, as a fuel source. Um, so this is very exciting, and we've got some some very um, strong interests from around the world now, and um, you now we're making progress with um, sectors, including oil and gas industry, the cement mm-hmm. industry, and uh, chemical um, production industries. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of picture. Yeah, and as I mentioned before, we've got a plant that has um, being built in India, Uh, It got delayed badly due to COVID, but it's now arriving, as far as I know, it's arriving in five days' time um, into Newcastle, and then the plan is to get that up and running as a demonstration plant as quickly as possible. This is quite a large plant. It's not a a small piece of equipment by any means. Um, It's about five metres tall, uh, about 10 metres square base, and this will be something that we can bring these people to come and visit and have a look at it, see how it operates, see how efficient it is. Um, and it's something that can be scaled very easily and scaled and then uh, sold or licensed around the whole world to all sorts of applications. Any industrial process producing carbon dioxide can use this. So that's our sort of, that's our lead project. But what we also have is um, develop, we've developed processes to either use site uh, in its own right as, a, as an activated material by using its very high surface area, its unique structure and its surface chemistry. Um, to do things like purify the air and reduce carbon dioxide. Um, but also we can use it as a mold or a template to produce nanocarbons at very low cost. So this is interesting because we can, we can produce currently a nanocarbon from our site with about uh, a surface area of about 2000 square meters per gram, which is a huge surface area for a very small amount of material. And then we can then activate that surface area to allow it to do all sorts of exciting things. And what we're working on now and where we're getting progress in is uh, areas of of hydrogen storage and transport. Um, Mm. Batteries, we can use it in battery anodes uh, and we're getting currently about five times improvement in lithium-ion battery performance by using our nanocarbons. Uh, It's probably important to mention that we've we've measured this material and uh, compared it directly with things like graphene and with, uh, carbon nanotubes, which are very expensive, difficult materials to make. Uh, and we outperform those by quite a considerable amount. So we get some tremendous re- results in those. Uh, also, water purification. So it can be used to, uh, to purify water and used in antimicrobial, antiviral applications. So that's another area of research we're working on. Uh, and the tubes as well, nanotubes can be used in agricultural applications. So we've got uh, a project running with $2.4 million of government funding to use the site to do a number of things. One is to um, retain moisture in the soil to improve productivity, but also to deliver herbicides and fertilizer by using the tubes um, to, to, as a controlled delivery device. So that's happening now and it's progressing very well. And the last one, we, um, the main one we've got funding for at the moment, is to remove microplastics from the ocean. So we can use, again, we can use the halocyte structure and chemistry, uh, and we've developed up the technique that can um, cause the microplastics in the ocean to agglomerate together in a, in a large mass and then be extracted and recycled. So another very topical subject is you know, the microplastics now are getting worse and worse. So, uh, we've, so we're covering a lot of areas there in our technologies. Now we're covering decarbonization, we're covering hydrogen energy, we're covering batteries, agriculture, and purification of oceans. You've been busy bees. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Never a um, dull moment.
1: Never, never a dull moment. Um, I've looked at hundreds, thousands of gold companies and copper companies, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable about valuing them. Um, you know, as an analyst or as an investor, yeah, I look at these companies, and I think. Oh, I know. And, and there are peers that I can look at and I can say, oh, it's cheap relative to this one. You know, there's, a, there's a universe in which I can calibrate uh, my expectations of value or the share price for a company how do you how does one go about valuing andromeda
0: yeah it's a good question i think that's why we've had some strange market reactions because now there's people get very excited about what we have um you know as a future upside um and they get a bit confused about what we have as a moment as a strong commercial mature business case and because we're not something like gold, you know, so you have, gold is easy, you have a a gram amount per tonne, you have a size of resource and you can work out the numbers quite easily. Now that situation is very different. Um, And the market doesn't necessarily understand that very well. And certainly in Australia, it's been a big problem in Australia because Kellen really hasn't been commercialized in that part of the world due to that reason. It's not understood. It's usually the value is too low to make it of any economic value. Um, And there's too many other uh, precious metals or base metals around. far more exciting. Um, But to value us, um, what we've used for our DFS and what you see in numbers come out of DFS is uh, we've got a we've got a resource size there, very large resource, very high purity, very consistent resource. It's got a value in the market. And if I know it's a dangerous thing to do, but if you compare it with a gold um, deposit example, we're talking about um, something like one and a half, two grams of gold, um, except we've got a, a 34 million ton resource there at that value. So, it's uh, when you compare it side by side and the amount of investment required to get that commercialized, you know, we're talking about 90 million, which is now there's a lot of fat built into that. It's actually a very interesting proposition just on that base case. And it's very commercial um, and very mature business because that, that material has been used uh, industrially now for over a thousand years. So it's nothing new. Um, the people who use it, uh, they know it very well. They want more of it. That's growing, it grows on year on year the price never goes down it just goes up and up will stay stable there's been probably 30 years of um, increases in price now it never lights the world on fire it goes up maybe three or four percent per year but it just keeps going up so that means very little volatility so so
1: you're effectively saying um look at it on a, on a financial basis so, so do the financial numbers look at the capital in look at the the ebitda that we'd be producing which from your feasibility study was 82 million Aussie a year um, why
0: is the payback
1: <clears throat> just under six years?
0: Yeah, so that was another question that came up after the DFS came out. And I think this is something that was misunderstood uh, because in the pre-FS, we had a payback of 18 months. So that was uh, now much shorter, but a, a very different case. Now, what we have with the DFS, we actually start making money in year two. So we're into profit in year two. But what we're doing is because we're using a staged approach, we're rolling the profit back into the, to the expansions as we go through the stages. So this is to protect the shareholders and keep the value for the shareholders. So we we keep reinvesting our profit back into the mine, into expansion, Um, and we end up with, the free cash flow is spectacular. You know, we got three years, we're talking about now $80 million of free cash flow. Um, So and with an MPV of 600 million odd, um, it would be 700 plus if it wasn't for the exchange rate and so on. Then, you know, where we sit now with our market cap around about 300, about 50% of that, um, now, that is probably where we should be just based on the great white DFS at the moment. No, it's not. It's fairly close. Um, but what's not factored into that is um, all the nanotechnologies and all the potential upside there. Um, plus, we've got you now our, our metals projects that they're not factored in either. So you know, the, the copper, the gold and the rare earths. So there's a lot of other upside there. So getting a value on it is quite tricky. And I think that's why we've seen those, uh, some, a, bit of a wild swing in the share price recently. Uh, because people are finding it hard to understand that uh, and also understand what business we're actually in. Um, but the fact is that it's a very, very stable business, the industrial minerals, uh, and it's a business that is a business of the future. These minerals are going to be required in larger and larger amounts for decarbonisation and renewable energy. So we're confident that our resources, um, which are going to be growing dramatically over the next few weeks and months, are going to be some very valuable materials and they'll be something that's probably in short supply in the world. Now there's already the biggest mines in the world for oil site cutting have shut down uh, and they want our material to process. We could sell all of our our production, we could sell that as DSO uh, and make some money, but that will be giving the value away. So we decided not to do that. Now we looked at it very closely uh, and it looked like it was attractive. No, it was just dig a hole and ship it off and make some money, Um, but we want to capture as much value as possible. Uh, and we know that this material is in demand now, and it's only going to grow and grow. Um, so, as a as a company, you know, we feel that our future is extremely bright, just based on the Great White. Um, if you start to factor in the success in the in uh, the carbon capture area, you know, and feel that that's not far away now, we've got some say some multi billion dollar corporations looking closely at that technology. Um, and as pressure comes on, carbon trading you know spreads around the world, then we've got something here that's very unique, something that can turn uh, carbon dioxide into something that's valuable, not just remove it. So uh, we think that the upside here is potentially very, very large. And I haven't even talked about our hard purity project that we're working on as well. Uh, you know, and that's something sure. that's very interesting in its own right. I think we're going to have to save that for another time. But um, James,
1: thank you so much. It's been, a, it's been a, a fascinating kind of journey for me. I've learned so much about your company and about Carolyn and about the nanotechnologies. Um, good luck with the year ahead Uh, I look forward to seeing the environmental approval sometime in the second half of the year and the FID and um, just general news flow from Andromeda, lots of exciting stuff going on
0: Yeah thanks William, it's been great and you're right there's a lot of uh, very good news to come in the second half of this year and next few months, I think it will be very exciting for anyone who's involved with us